Chapter 44 of Our Vanishing Wildlife. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Stephen Kinford. Our Vanishing Wildlife by William T. Hornaday. Chapter 44 The Greatest Needs of the Wildlife Cause and the Duty of the Hour. The fate of wildlife in North America hangs today by three very slender threads, the names of which you will hardly guess unaided. They are labor, money, and publicity. The threads are slender because there is so little raw material in them. We do not need money with which to buy votes or influence, but money with which to pay workers, to publish things to arouse the American people, to sting sportsmen into action, to hire wardens, to prosecute game hogs and buy refuges for wildlife. If a sufficient amount of money for these purposes cannot be procured, then as sure as the earth continues to revolve, our wildlife will pass away forever. This is no cause for surprise or wonder. In this twentieth century, money is essential to every great enterprise, whether it be for virtue or mischief. The enemies of wildlife and the people who support them are very powerful. The man whose pocket or whose personal privileges is threatened by new legislation is prompted by business reasons to work against you and spend money in protecting his interests. Now, it happens that the men of ordinary means who have nothing personal at stake in the preservation of wildlife save sentimental considerations cannot afford to leave their business more than three or four days each year on protection affairs. Yet many times services are demanded for many days, or even weeks together, in order to accomplish results. Bad repeal bills must be fought until they are dead, and good protective bills must be supported until the breath of life is breathed into them by the executive signature. With money in hand, good men always can be found who will work in game protection for about one-half what they would demand in other pursuits. With the men whom you really desire, sentiment is always a controlling factor. It is my inflexible rule, however, in asking for services, that men who give valuable time and strength to the cause shall not be allowed to take their expense money from their own pockets. Soldiers on the firing line cannot provide the sinews of war that come from the paymaster's chest. Campaigns of publicity are matters of tremendous necessity and importance but their successful promotion requires hundreds or possibly thousands of dollars for each state that is covered. I believe that the wealthy men and women of America are the most liberal givers for the benefit of humanity that can be found in all the world. New York especially contains a great number of men who year in and year out work hard for money in order to give it away. The depth and breadth of the philanthropic spirit in New York City is to me the most surprising of all the strange impulses that sway the inhabitants of that seething mass of mixed humanity. Every imaginable cause for the benefit of mankind, save one, has received, and still is receiving, millions of gift dollars. Some enterprises for the transcendent education of the people are at this moment hopelessly wallowing in the excess of wealth that has been thrust upon them. Men are being hired at high salaries to help spend wealth in high, higher, highest education and research. It is now fashionable to bequeath millions to certain causes that do not need them in the least. In education, there is a mad scramble to educate every young man to the topmost notch, often far above his probable station in life, and into tastes and wants far beyond his powers to maintain. In all this, however, there would be no cause for regret if the wildlife of our continent 
were not in such a grievous state. If we felt no conscious burden for those who come after us, we would not care where the millions go. But since things are as they are, it is heartbreaking to see the cause of wildlife protection actually starving, or at the best, subsisting only on financial husks and crumbs, while less important causes literally flounder in surplus wealth. This regret is intensified by the knowledge that in no other cause for the conservation of the resources most valuable to mankind will a dollar go so far, or bring back such good results, as in the preservation of wildlife. The promotion of the Bain Bill and the enactment of the Bain Law is a fair example. That law is today on the statute books of the state of New York because fifty men and women promptly subscribed five thousand dollars to a fund formed with special references to the expenses of the campaign for that measure and the uplift of that victory will be felt for years to come, just as it already has been in Massachusetts. At one time I was tempted to show the financial skeleton in the closet of wildlife protection by inserting here a statement of the funds available to be expended by all the New York organizations during the campaign year of 1911 to 1912, but I cannot do it. The showing is too painful, too humiliating. From it our enemies would derive too much comfort. Even in New York State, in view of the great interests at stake, the showing is pitiful. But what shall we say of Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, Connecticut, New Jersey, and a dozen other states where the situation is much worse? In the winter of 1912, a cry for help came to us from a neighboring state, where a terrific fight was being made by the forces of destruction against all reform measures and in behalf of retrogression on spring shooting. The appeal said, the situation in our legislature is the worst that it has been in years. Our enemies are very strong, well organized, and they fight us at every step. We have no funds, and we are expected to make bricks without straw. Is there not something that you can do to help us? There was. Only one week previously, a good friend, who declines to be named, gave us $2,000 of real money for just such emergencies. Within thirty-six hours an entirely new fighting force has been organized and equipped for service. Within one week those reinforcements have made a profound impression on the defenses of the enemy, and in the end the great fight was won. Of our small campaign fund it took away over one thousand dollars, but the victory was worth it. With money enough, a reasonable sum, the birds of North America and some of the small mammal species also can be saved. The big game that is hunted and killed outside the game preserves and outside of such places as New Brunswick and the Adirondacks cannot be saved until each species is given perpetual protection. Colorado is saving a small remnant of her mountain sheep, but Montana and Wyoming are wasting theirs because they allow killing, and the killers are ten times too numerous for the sheep. They imagine that by permitting only the killing of rams, they are saving the species, but that is an absolute fallacy, and soon it will have a fatal ending. With an endowment fund of two million dollars, only double the price of the two old Velasquez paintings purchased recently by a gentleman of New York, a very good remnant of the wildlife of North America could be saved. But who will give the fund, or even a quarter of it? Thus far, the largest sums ever given in America for the cause of wildlife protection, so far as I know personally, have been the following. Albert Wilcox, to the National Association of Audubon Societies, $322,000. Mary Butcher Fund, to the National Associations of Audubon Societies, 
$12,000. Mrs. Russell Sage, for the purchase of Marsh Island, $150,000. American Game Protective and Propagation Association, from the manufacturers of firearms and ammunition, annually, $25,000. Charles Willis Ward and E. A. Mickelhenny, purchase of game preserve, presented to Louisiana, $39,000. Mrs. Russell Sage, miscellaneous gifts to the National Audubon Society, $20,000. The American Bison Society for the Montana National Herd, $10,526. New York Zoological Society, total about $20,000. John E. Thayer, purchase of game preserve, $5,000. Caroline Phelps Stokes, Bird Fund, New York Zoological Society, $5,000. Boone and Crockett Fund for Preservation, $5,000. A Friend in Rochester, $2,500. Henry C. Frick, $1,500. Samuel Thorne, $1,250. Of all the above, the only endowment funds yielding an annual income are those of the National Association of Audubon Societies and the Caroline Phelps Stokes Fund of $5,000 in the Treasury of the Zoological Society. A fund of $25,000 per year for five years has been guaranteed by the makers of shotguns, rifles, and ammunition to the American Game Protective and Propagation Association. This is like a limited endowment. In the civilized world, there are citizens of many kinds, but all of them can be placed in two groups. One, those with a sense of duty toward mankind and who will do their duty as good citizens, and two, those who from the cradle to the grave meanly and sordidly study their own selfish interests, who never do aught save in expectation of a quick return benefit, and who recognize no such thing as duty toward mankind at large. Men and women of the first class are honored in life, mourned when dead, and gratefully remembered by posterity. They leave the world better than they found it, and their lives have been successful. Men and women of the second class are merely so many pieces of animated furniture, and when they pass out, the world cares no more than when old chairs are thrown upon the scrap heap. There are many men so selfish, so ignorant and mean of soul, that even out of well-filled purses they would not give ten dollars to save the whole bird fauna of North America from annihilation. To all persons of that brand it is useless to appeal. As soon as you find one, waste no time upon him. Get out of his neighborhood as quickly as you can, and look for help among real men." The wild life of the world cannot be saved by a few persons, even though they work their hearts out in the effort. The cause needs two million more helpers, and they must be sought in group number one. They are living somewhere, but the great trouble is to find them before it is too late. There are times and causes in which the good citizen has no option but to render service. The most important of such causes are the relief of suffering humanity, the conservation of the resources of nature, and the prevention of vandalism. If the American nation had refused aid to stricken San Francisco, the callous hard-heartedness of it would have shocked the world. If the German army of 1871 had destroyed the art treasures and the libraries of Paris, it would have set the German nation back ten centuries into the ranks of the lowest barbarians. And yet, in America, and in the regions now being scourged by the feather trade, a wonderful fauna is being destroyed. It took millions of years to develop that marvelous array of wildlife, and when it is gone, it never can be replaced. Yet the army of destruction is sweeping it away as joyously as a hired laborer cuts down a field of corn. 
that wildlife can be saved. If done, it must be done by the men and women of Group Number One. The means by which it can be saved are money, labor, and publicity. Every man of ordinary means and intelligence can contribute either money or labor. The men on the firing line must not be expected to furnish their own food and ammunition. The workers must be provided with the money that active campaign work imperatively demands. Those who cannot conveniently or successfully labor should give money to this cause. But at the same time, every good citizen should keep in touch with his law-making representatives and, in times of need, ask for votes for whatever new laws are necessary. With money enough to arouse the American people in certain ways, the wildlife of North America, north of Mexico, can be saved. Money can secure labor and publicity, and the people will do the rest. For this campaign work, I want and must have a permanent fund of ten thousand dollars per annum, cash always ready for every emergency in field work. I greatly need and must have immediately an endowment wildlife fund of at least one hundred thousand dollars, and eventually two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. I can no longer pass the hat each year. This is needed in addition to the several thousands of dollars annually being expended by the Zoological Society in this work. The society is already doing its utmost in wildlife protection, just as it is in several other fields of activity. Outside of New York, many wealthy men will say, "Let New York do it." That often is the way when national campaigning is to be done. In national wildlife protection work, New York is today bearing about nine tenths of the burden. It is my belief that in 1912, outside of New York City, less than $10,000 was raised and expended in wildlife protection, saved by state and national appropriations. We know that in the year mentioned, New York expended $221,000 in this cause, all from private sources. In a very short time, I shall call for the $100,000 that I now must have as an endowment fund for nationwide work. To be placed at five and a half percent interest for the five thousand five hundred dollar annual income that it will yield, how much of this will come from outside the state of New York? Some of it, I am sure, will come from Massachusetts and Pennsylvania, but will any of it come from Cleveland, Cincinnati, Chicago, St. Louis, and San Francisco? The duty of the hour. I have now said my say in behalf of wildlife. Surely the path of duty toward the remnant of wildlife is plain enough. Will those who read this book pass along my message that the hour for a revolution has struck? Will the millions of men commanded by general apathy now arouse before it is too late to act? Will the true sportsmen rise up and do their duty bravely and unselfishly? Will the people with wealth to give away do their duty toward wildlife and humanity fairly and generously? Will the zoologists awake, leave their tables in their stone palaces of peace, and come out to the firing line? Will the lawmakers heed the handwriting on the wall and make laws that represent the full discharge of their duty toward wildlife and humanity? Will the editors beat the alarm gong early and late, in season and out of season, until the people awake? On the answer to these questions hang the fate of the wild creatures of the world, their preservation or their extermination. End of chapter forty-four. Recording by Stephen Kinford, Sharon Township, Ohio. End of Our Vanishing Wildlife by William T. Hornaday.